On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 131, Isapo Iqbal shares about the peer review of teaching. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. If you have been teaching in higher ed for any length of time, you have probably already had someone come and review your teaching for one reason or another, or you have the threat of it coming at some point in the future. It's something almost all of us will face, and today's guest is able to help us both be better at it as a participant in the process, and also if we're someone that's going to facilitate this process for someone else to help them with their own growth and development. I'm so happy to be welcoming today Isabo Iqbal. She's an educational developer at the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Technology at the University of British Columbia, and she's involved in various formative peer review and teaching initiatives there. She also consults with instructors on teaching and learning matters and facilitates processes and workshops designed to improve teaching and student learning in higher education. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Bonnie. And I would love if you would one more time pronounce your name, because I'm not sure I got it the first time, but <laughs> I want to make sure that everyone gets to know you and, and has the proper pronunciation. You did a great job. So it's Isabu Iqbal. I love it. Thank you so much. And for anyone listening that's always wondered how the heck you pronounce my name, it's Stahoviak. And my husband, Dave, works for Dale Carnegie Training, and he always says we should picture us cooking, which is hard to do if you know us because we don't do a lot of it, but standing in front of a stove and we stutter a little bit, so it's Stahove, and we're cooking an E and a Yak, Stahoviak. Do you have any tricks for yours? Not too many. I, <laughs> I try to tell people to think of E, like eek, I saw a mouse. And then the za, I think, is fairly easy, and bow, as in bow tie. So, izabo. Yeah. It's so important whenever we meet people to help them break down our names, especially if we have difficult ones to pronounce, I guess, because it just makes it so much easier. And I do that all the time for my students that I work with to, to help them break down my crazy to pronounce last name. And then I always have to make a joke about how I married into it so that they, they can laugh yeah. with me and then feel more comfortable. Well, I'm so interested in today's topic. I told you over email that, of course, I've had my teaching evaluated before. And then many times in my career, I've been a part of just not even in the higher ed context, but just I used to manage trainers and evaluating their teaching and helping them develop. But I was laughing because it just didn't occur to me that this would have been something that someone would have written an entire dissertation on, which you have. And I, I mean, of course, it makes perfect sense to me now that I know that, but it's just I'm so excited to talk to someone who has such in-depth knowledge. And I'd love to hear how you first got interested in studying this topic. Yeah, it really came to me just a bit by by fluke. I've been working at the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Technology for a number of years, and I had two colleagues who uh, saw the need to develop some 
some resources around peer review of teaching. And then they invited me to join them in offering the workshops. And so over time, I became really interested in the conversations that were taking place in the workshops. And I also ran a community of practice for a while on peer review of teaching became so interested that as I was picking a dissertation topic, this is the one that I was really uh, drawn to. And let's start out by just really defining what is the peer review of teaching? Sure. So I'll, I'll uh, quote a formal, a formal definition. And then, you know, throughout our conversation, we'll talk a, a bit more about that. So peer review of teaching has been defined as informed assessment by colleagues or peers of teaching related activities for the purpose of fostering development or making personnel decisions. So that definition right away points to the fact that there are different types of peer reviews of teaching and the terms that your listeners might be familiar with are formative peer review of teaching and summative peer review of teaching. And formative is really about fostering professional growth in teaching. It tends to be what's meant to be a confidential process something that happens between the reviewer and reviewee. It's voluntary and, uh, as I mentioned, really focused on professional growth. And the summative, which if you imagine a continuum would be on the opposite side of the continuum, is about making evaluative decisions for the purposes of tenure, promotion, merit, pay, and in those cases, the results are, are not confidential. They're, they're public in that often it's a department head or a committee that's, that's looking at this comparing to other people, uh, either in the department or the program, and then making really high stakes decisions. I was mentioning to you before we started recording, I have never had anyone review my teaching for any other purpose besides mm. summative. And as you're sharing those distinctions, it makes perfect sense to me that those two things can and should exist. But I'm trying to just envision, you know, talk, talk to me about some of the ways in which the formative offers strengths that the summative doesn't and some of the stories be, that you've just been able to see people have their teaching transformed. Yeah, I think, I mean, best case scenario is where an individual would have had the opportunity to have several formative peer reviews of teaching before being reviewed summatively. And formative peer reviews of teaching really offer the opportunity for growth for both the reviewer and the reviewee. And I've heard this over and over. And I think Sometimes reviewers, especially if they're new reviewers, are surprised at how much they learn and get out of the process when they um, are invited into someone's classroom. So we're talking now the, the formative peer review of teaching. And it can be a, such a growth experience for, for both parties. And it speaks to the importance of having the right match so I always feel that it's such a privilege when someone invites me into their classroom to to do a peer observation. And I make sure to let people know that because it is often a private space. And I feel like when someone trusts me enough to invite me in and a 
you know, a good peer review form of peer review teaching process involves, first of all, careful matching, also what we call pre-observation discussion. So if I'm invited in to a classroom, we have a con- the con- instructor and I have a conversation ahead of time, talk about some of the things that matter when it comes to approaches and design of the of teaching and often they'll share with me things that may be in addition to things that are going well things that they find really challenging and I feel like people are really potentially vulnerable when when they subject themselves let's put it to to a peer review teaching because they don't really know how it's going to go um, and then after that would be the, the classroom observation. Now, there's there's many different ways of doing peer reviews. It may not involve a classroom observation, but the most typical would uh, way to do it is uh, then an observation of the classroom teaching and then a post-observation conversation where, let's say, within two weeks, the reviewer and the reviewee, uh, that's the terms I use, would meet and talk about what happened. And you know, as a reviewer, we may walk away, we have a bunch of other things to do, and we reflect on on what happened. And the reviewee may be feeling very, very anxious, even if they're a good teacher and a strong teacher, it's, it's still, I've seen that nervousness. So I think approaching the process very gently and with mm-hmm. a lot of care is so important. You know that my husband has a podcast called Coaching for Leaders. And of course, a lot of the conversations there are about coaching. And one of the things that we find out about the practice of coaching is that the person that I'm coaching needs to want to be enter into this relationship, Mm -hmm. wants to be coached. Otherwise, I mean, you can't coach someone who doesn't want to be coached. Is there any element of that with peer review of instruction? Because I know that at least in some institutions, this is not necessarily something that the person has asked for. This is something that has been required of them. And I, I know there's some lots of ethical questions here. Yeah. Um, so there are formative peer reviews of teaching that are truly voluntary. And then there are others that even though the form, formal dish definition is that it's voluntary, what it actually means is that you know, thou is required by the department to have done two formative peer reviews of teaching before you do your your summative peer review teaching. And and in that case, it's more what you're describing. So actually more uh, of what I was describing was not what you're saying, because I actually that that I think would be healthy because you're the structure then is ensuring that I don't have all of my evaluations my entire career be summative. That you're that it sounds like you're describing a process that says, no, we want to require that you have two formative before you got to summative. I'm talking about, wow, my class is going so badly. So many students have complained that now I'm required to have someone come observe a class because I'm really failing in my teaching. And this would particularly be if I was early in my career. Yes. So in this case, this scenario that you've just described, where things may not be going very well in the classroom, and then uh, you get told as an instructor that uh, one of your peers is going to come in and essentially assess what's going on and hopefully work together then to towards addressing some of the issues that may be met with 
with some relief. I think most, maybe more often it's met with defensiveness and a lot of fear. Yeah. I know that I get fearful, even though I have more than a decade of great teaching evaluations. And it's not like I'm wondering if this is the right field for me. But it's, I mean, it's just, it is an incredibly nerve wracking thing, especially because I always want to say it's not always like this. And I don't mean because it's going so poorly, but just because every class is so distinct for me that it's so hard when someone just sees, it's like, you know, your entire life and they just see one picture, one little snapshot. It's really, it's really, it can be nerve wracking. And I know that I've um, heard some really good advice about if we're the one being observed some of the things that we can do to make that process better. I'm trying to remember, I think it was Gubler who writes for the Chronicle of Vitae. I'll have to look it up, see if I can find it in the show notes, how we could respond as the one being reviewed. Do you have any thoughts on that advice for us? If if someone's coming to sit in one of our classes, how we might approach that? Yeah, I think, um, so just as you said, despite the fact that you might have decades of experience and high student evaluations of teaching, it's still nerve wracking. So I think my advice to someone who is about to be peer reviewed is to make sure you have at least one conversation with your reviewer ahead of time, because I think establishing rapport and being able to talk about what's happening in your classroom is is important for both of you to be able to to hear that so for the reviewee to be able to express what's what's going on for the reviewer to be able to ask questions and to really out to map out the process because there's best practices in peer review but often those don't get followed so what often happens is that there's no conversation ahead of time Um, The reviewer may appear sometimes without the reviewee even knowing there are cases where where that happens. Suddenly a reviewer appears in a person's classroom because some departments feel that the element of surprise is preferable over the element of being planned uh, so that the instructor doesn't fully script out everything and uh, for their for their classroom that day. That is really very nerve wracking for for an instructor. And also just to point out, reviewers often feel nervous yeah. too, yeah. even though one might think that they hold, you know, most of the power, the power dynamics in a in a review situation are pretty complex. So yeah, back to your question about advice, make sure you have build rapport and establish a relationship before. I mean, part of this is also determining whether you're a good fit for one another. Mm-hmm. And a reviewee, you know, depending on the the practices in their department, can can have some say about who they want to be paired up with. Less so for a summative, but but for a formative typically, yes. It was David Gubler, and I can't believe I actually remembered that because this is from mm. back in, when was this written? <laughs> so while ago. When my brain actually works, it surprises me. Anyway, one of the other pieces of advice that I really liked, he said, was to acknowledge that the person's there. Yes. I mean, in my yeah. classes, there are you know, 30 people. It's not like they're not going to notice the person sitting in the back of the room they've never seen before. 
yeah. to acknowledge that they're there. And, and that really helped, at least my most recent evaluation helped just us all feel better about it. And the students and I could explain to them why he was there and exactly. how important it is that our institution, that you have a high quality education and how much we learn from each other. Yeah. Some instructors do that the class before they'll let their students know mm-hmm. that there'll be a guest and what that's about. Some of them do it the the day of. You may have noticed a new face in the class, you know, that to, and be able to explain it and frame it in terms of their growth as a as a teacher or maybe the requirements of the, you know, the department or the program. And, you know, which also reminds me that uh, back to the the nervousness piece, I mean, sometimes a reviewer has to rush off right after and, you know, go to another class or a meeting. And when possible, I think it's it's a really nice thing for the reviewer and the reviewer just to be able to touch base at the end of the class and for the reviewer to, to, to say a few encouraging words, uh, because sometimes our face may make it seem like we're thinking one thing when perhaps that could be completely misinterpreted by the by the reviewee Mm -hmm. as uh, discontent or who knows what so you know a a warm smile and 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 encouraging words just to to connect with one another right after is is a great idea that's so important I had I learned very early in my career that Sounds so silly, but the better that someone was doing as a presenter at getting me to learn something incredibly new for me that really challenged my way of thinking, the more likely I was to look like I was horrified because I'd get these little crinkles in my eyebrows and I'd be furiously taking notes. And all that meant was, wow, oh my gosh, I've never thought about it that way before. And oh, this is so, but the expression completely was disconnected from what I was actually experiencing. And I think, I think think I perceive that I'm generally a person who is pretty transparent, that my facial expressions and body language do tend to match, but not in that particular instance. So I had to condition myself. Now, literally, when I'm watching someone give a presentation, I'm going, are your eyebrows up? Are we smiling? <laughs> and then even taking notes to be recognized that that can be a really threatening thing for some people, even just the act of taking notes. Yeah. Why are you writing so much? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And which reminds me, as you were talking, I was thinking about the the other piece that I think is really important in that pre-conversation um, is to talk about what your goals. So if you are the person being reviewed, what are your goals? What motivated you to request this review? And even if it wasn't requested, what are you hoping to get out of the process? Because um, let's say, you know, Bonnie, you're going into somebody's classroom, you, you could potentially be observing 20 different things going on because of the experience that, that you have. And maybe only one thing really matters to that instructor. Well, I mean, the last thing you want to do is overwhelm them with a whole bunch of recommendations. But if you can, in good coaching fashion, really focus on what it is that they want to get out of the process and really make that whole peer review teaching cycle center around that, I think it's just so much so important. Mm. That's really powerful. I'm I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to learning more about that pre-process because that's not something that I've experienced and also not something I've spent a lot of time. I can see how much of a difference something like that would make. So do you, uh, just out of curiosity, have you experienced the post-process? Because uh, sadly, that piece often doesn't happen. So someone will come into the classroom, maybe there's a pre-conversation, 
the there's a classroom observation and then there's no conversation that happens after. Now, of course, this tends to be much more the case for summative, but uh, that I just feel is, is almost criminal. Uh, 10 years ago is the last time I had the post conversation. So it's let's just say it's been a while. And let's just say that's not the last time I was evaluated. And I think well, because I have a fairly healthy confidence in terms of that I'm in the right line of work, that 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 is somewhat more okay, but it's still not okay. I mean, I think as leaders in higher ed, if we are responsible for evaluating someone else's teaching, I think might as well have not done it at all than to not close the loop with them. Because the gift that you can give them, it's like you told them I'm going to give you a gift, but actually then you never give the gift. You take it back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And then, you know, the when we consider the summative peer review of teaching, it's one thing for the reviewer to close the loop with the with the reviewee and, and to, I always encourage the reviewer to to share what they've learned in in the process. So it's not this one directional you know, thing that happens mm-hmm. so that the reviewee also sees, uh, let's say, to put in your language, you know, the gift that they have also given to to the reviewer. Often what happens is that there's no closing of the loop at a higher level. That is, the department head or program chair who we know is reading that report, or we hope is reading that report because it was required from a policy standpoint, you know, how meaningful it would be for them to send a quick note to the instructor and say, hey, I just read the report, you know, I'm so glad that things are going well or exciting to read about the innovative things you're trying in your classroom. And that's why often people get, people being instructors, get quite cynical about the process, especially in the summative peer review teaching, because it just seems to evaporate into the ether. In the last year or two, I will occasionally see flurries of tweets. And the the most recent example would be from Josh Eiler, who is the director of the Center for Teaching excellence at Rice University. They do something and I don't remember what it's called, but at Rice it's a it's an entire week of classes where you yes. you as professors go and sit in each other's class. And there's a name for it. I mean and it's always a hashtag. Open classroom. Okay. And mm-hmm. then I think they do that at Yale too and a different name. But but so I'm starting to see things like that that I'm getting really interested in that I think would be helpful for my institution. Is that an example of a peer review of teaching? Definitely. The open classroom, which is the, the term that I'm familiar with, is is most definitely a type of peer review of teaching. And I think it's a really exciting initiative. I've heard of some departments taking that on simply because, because they recognize that it's, it, it's great practice and a wonderful way for colleagues to get to know each other and what's happening in each other's classroom and to share, you know, good practices. And then other times it becomes something more formal, like what you're mentioning, where it's actually a university-wide initiative. And when I've spoken with colleagues who have had a hand in organizing this type of initiative, it seems like it's really positive. Yeah, I really I get I get captured. I want to go to everybody's lectures just from seeing the tweets that are happening out there. It looks really fascinating. 
I'll try yeah. to find some examples of these kinds of initiatives. If I can, maybe I'll send a quick email to Josh too and, and find out the name of it because I'm just not being able to find it through my Googling at the moment. But mm-hmm. but yeah, they sound really, really like a great thing, but also just to bring the community together and to maybe shave off some of the negative sides of this. Because I think then you are celebrating the excellent as opposed to punishing people who are really struggling. And not that, I mean, punishment should never be a part of it. But when we focus, I guess, on the bottom 20%, for lack of a better example, I mean, you're just missing so much of an opportunity of what we can learn from one another. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there's so many potential benefits to peer reviews of teaching. And I have heard from from many people that I've worked with about about the growth and how exciting it was to develop something together or talk about something together you know with the, with respect to their teaching and sometimes it ends up being more of an ongoing relationship where there's mutual mentoring that that happens over time so it can go in a whole bunch of different ways is there anything I haven't asked you yet about the peer review of teaching before we go to the recommendation segment? I think we were chatting a little bit um, beforehand, but you know, if someone is in an institution where this isn't happening and they're you know curious to know about it, there is a lot of information, and I know you're going to be linking to some to some sites that have really well developed um, resources there, and so I would say that if this is something that an individual is interested in. There are a lot of people with huge amounts of experience doing this and and so to reach out. I'm so glad that you brought that up. And by the way, anyone that wants to get to the show notes for this episode, they'll be at teachinginhighered.com slash 131. And Vanderbilt has an incredible post all about peer review of teaching and if you wanted to get started doing something like this, you pretty much couldn't go wrong by starting there. And then, of course, also looking at your dissertation as well would be a good a good sort of grounding for people to to begin this process. Yeah. So, no, I think that I think we've covered some of the hot spots. This is the point in the show in which we each get to give some recommendations. And I wanted to share about a book that I read. And I've been hearing about this book for a very long time. It's by Atul Gawande. And I first read his book called The Checklist Manifesto. And I've talked about that on previous episodes. In fact, did an entire episode about checklists a while back. And so I knew he I knew he was the kind of author who just is such an exceptional writer. I mean, who could think that you could make a book about checklists riveting that you can't wait to turn the page. Well, he has done that with medicine. He's a he's a surgeon, but he also has his own experience with the death and dying of family members. And so he he can take the professional but also blend it with his own powerful personal stories. And so he wrote the book called Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. And I had both read an article I believe he wrote in The Atlantic when the book first came out and had heard a lot about it. I mean, it's been recommended for a long, long while now. But I kept staying away from it because I thought that, well, I'm not really... Because I I thought I already had gotten the point. (laughs) Because what it is is, gosh, you know, we spend so much medicine the very last, you know, couple days or weeks of someone's life and, and that 
that may not be the best quality of an end of life experience. And so I thought like, well, there's so many wonderful books to read out there. This one's a bit on my list of ones I want to read, but it just didn't bubble up until this trip that I took to the OLC conference had lots of time to catch up on my reading. But I was completely, it, this book has that, but it has so much more too, because it's looking not just at the last couple of weeks of one's life, but really even before that. And I do have a family member who is um, starting to show some real signs of needing additional care in their lives. And so it ended up being far broader than I expected. I thought it was just going to be like days, weeks kinds of, th- of stories. And it's, it really is about, you know, sort of the last chapters in our lives. And he is such a brilliant writer. If you've not read his books before, he's so good. So I recommend Being Mortal, Medicine, and What Matters in the End. Mm. I remember hearing your podcast on the Checklist Manifesto and wondering how geeky I could be to be getting so excited about the information <laughs> you were sharing. <laughs> so it stole my list of things to read, but it was <laughs> it does seem like a really good read. Do you have another one? Oh no, that's it. It's your that turn. It? Now. Sorry, I, okay. I got I was listening so intently to what you were saying, I forgot I'm supposed to ask you. And now what do you have to recommend? <laughs> I didn't want to jump in without you being being finished. So I have a few things to recommend. So one, there's two podcasts that I'd like to recommend. And one is uh, The Hidden Brain, which is an NPR podcast, which is just fabulous. Do you listen to that one? No, I was thinking, I'm, oh, I'm laughing because I'm like, that's not what I need. My cue is oh. so full, but it, I'm, it sounds so good. Tell us more. <laughs> well, it really looks at um, some of the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior. So he'll take, for example, and this is relevant because we were chatting a little bit before the show started, he'll look at Airbnb and patterns of response or reaction to people with, uh, let's say, recognizably black names, if there's such a thing, versus what might be a name we associate with more of a, a white person. So, I mean, that's just one example. But his his the host's way of storytelling and the team, they just produce such an amazing podcast. It's mm. really wonderful. And then another one, uh, which I think you might like, and I absolutely love this one, it's called Under the Influence, and it's by Terry O'Reilly. Uh, it's produced by the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and it looks at, again, psychology uh, with marketing and advertising, and it is so well done. And it has a short season, can't remember where he's when he starts up again, but the episodes are about 30 minutes long, and they are brilliant absolutely brilliant so i i thoroughly enjoy those two podcasts i'm cracking um, up because i don't think andrew's going to be able to edit out my childlike um <laughs> excitement that i just showed while you were talking because oh, i'm teaching yeah. a consumer behavior class in the spring and i did share about this previously when i had on the author of teaching what you don't know And because I was just about to experience that last year, I taught it for the first time. So I'll be teaching it for the second time coming up. And I love taking students out of the classroom and having them listen to a podcast and go Mm -hmm. for a walk together. It's such a neat thing to do. And of course, we're right here in beautiful Southern California. They can go walk on the bay in Newport Beach. It's so beautiful. And this sounds perfect because if it's 30 minutes, that's just exactly the right length. And this will be a class that we look at these kinds of issues. So I'm so excited about that. I'm excited about both of them, but that one's really a treat for me. It is so good. 
And then the other ones around, it's a book. So uh, an author, her name is Eva Ibbotson, and she writes children's books. And I have a 15-year-old and uh, an 11-year-old, and I've read her books out loud to both my children and have just loved them in, in both cases, like with my younger child right now, to reread these books and revisit them. And she is a beautiful writer and some of the books that we've enjoyed uh, the most are uh, Journey to the River Sea, Star of Kazan. She's written a, a number of others. So I highly recommend those. Whether you have children or not, she's just um, a wonderful author. She sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. I've definitely got her added to the list. Well, you have such good ones for me. It's like you picked them out just for me. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, it has been so fun getting to know you. And I, I didn't actually say this at the start of the show, but I feel like I already know you just because you've been such a loyal listener and part of the community. You're not a quiet listener. I mean, in the sense of I've heard from you regularly, and you've really contributed to making what this show is today. And I know you've been doing the same thing for Dave, my husband with his podcast, too. We both really value you because you just help us do a better job, be better at what we do. Well, thank you. You both do outstanding work. Well, thanks. It's such a pleasure to get to talk to you and I look forward to just the conversation continuing. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks once again to Isabo for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed and sharing with us about the peer review of teaching. If you would like to peer review this show, see what I did there? It would be wonderful to help others discover the show. You can do that on iTunes. It's super easy just to put a number of stars up there or to write your reflections on what it's like to listen to the show. And thanks so much for listening. If you want to have all the show notes that we type up for these episodes, along with a blog post on teaching or higher ed in a single email delivered to your inbox every week, you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And when you do, you'll receive a copy of the e-guide, 19 tools to help you use technology in your teaching and productivity. And that all happens automatically. And again, just a single email a week. So hope you'll consider joining in the conversation. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next time.